I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And finally, we're back. After an extended absence, Dave, Concavity Show returns with episode number 67. Uh, 67. 67. With, which is going to be with Christian Taborda, but we're just doing a little uh, little intro riff here before we get to the conversation because it has been a little while since we did this, Matt. Um, I was a little bit rusty coming into this, I feel like. Uh, our last episode was, was Dario, Dio Febi, and... Um, I don't know when that was, a few months ago maybe. What uh, You were kind of busy during that time though, so we really didn't ha- have a chance to get together. So tell us a bit about what you've been up to. I was kind of busy, uh, and I apologize for my absence in April, May, June. <laughs> um, and I was really you know, on sabbatical for the whole month of June from my job and uh, spent a lot of April and May uh, finalizing a lot of the details for the David Foster Wallace conference here in Austin, mm-hmm. which took place June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Um, and we, I would say we also had some potential guests that didn't work out, or we had some you know, books that maybe we wanted to cover in that time, and we ended up having to reschedule and reschedule and reschedule and push out. So we yeah. still do have a lot of plans to um interview authors and you know the show isn't going away we've got a lot of great things lined up uh in future episodes we've just been slow you know this is not our either one of us is like our full-time job uh i think dave you've actually changed full-time jobs since we yeah i changed i changed employers in january so i used to work for a private online school now i work for the public district of saanich which is a area in victoria basically not so fully I've, been, I've been yeah. i've been tocing in a variety of classrooms in person uh including what is TOC? classes like like teacher on call sub okay. subbing substitute okay. uh i've been in like english classes senior english or junior high english i've been in uh i've taught drama weirdly it's not a subject area i teach i taught a grade one class one afternoon uh, I taught a science nine class, so like pretty off the wall stuff. Um, but then I had a, a very short contract at the online school that is run by the Sandwich School District for the last few weeks. So I was in the same office every day with the same people. It was great. Um, but yeah, it's a very different uh, pace of life than what I've been used to for like the last decade of just working from home as an online teacher. Um, yeah. Well, so and I, that's and been a big shakeout. We want to thank everyone who's you know stuck with us during this hiatus this break that we've been on for a few months but we are back uh and like i say we have this great conversation with christian tabordo today and we have some future guests already lined up and scheduled on the calendar and books in hand so we we're going to continue pretty much as as fast and furious as we can after this um i did want to give a brief you know rundown of the conference Totally. Uh, because you know we started out our life as a David Foster Wallace podcast, <laughs> yeah. and uh, this is probably one of the biggest. Our marriage began. Uh, that's right. Um, we've grown apart in some ways. No, um, <laughs> but this we're, conference. We're seeing a counselor. You know, was one of our biggest. Uh, it was one of my biggest dreams in life was to bring yeah. the David Foster Wallace conference to Austin. 
And I planned to do that in 2020. And that conference was canceled due to COVID and yeah. really canceled again in 2021. And mm -hmm. uh, we did have a Wallace conference in October of 2021 in Amsterdam. But uh, the conference we had here in June about a month ago was the you know first Wallace conference on American soil in uh, over three years. Yeah. Um, so we did not go to the one in 2019 in Illinois that was um, pretty sparsely attended as a very small conference. Um, but the one in 2022, um, I got to say, went very well. And I want to, we didn't, I didn't yeah, record I got, anything. I got that impression. <laughs> Unfortunately did not make it, but uh, Dave was not there, but a lot of other people were a lot of our former guests on the show. And yeah, I'm going to go tons through, and tons. go through some of that. Um, mm -hmm. um, but that's one of my great heartbreaks of 2022. Probably the greatest heartbreak is that I was not able to make it to this conference. And, I'm really uh, going to try to not to I rub really, it in. Uh, I really died inside that weekend. <laughs> you know, I, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm biased, but it was, it was probably the best conference I've yeah, ever been to. I'm, I'm sure it was. And I really appreciated like the level of um, like visibility that was happening during the conference. Like I was felt like I was seeing a lot from the wall society on Instagram and Twitter. Like the updates were just really fresh and, yeah. I f even though I wasn't able to be there, it felt like I got a really good taste or a good sense of what it was like to be there. Um, so big shout out to Andrea for updating the Instagram and, you know, making it feel like I sort of got a sense of what was going on each day. So that was cool. Yeah, she did a great job. And, uh, you know, one, one consequence of not having the conference for two years was that it gave us extra planning time. And, sure. <laughs> you know, what, one of the lessons yeah. I learned from this was really like if you do spend a lot of time planning something and it can actually go really well. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of contingency planning, but uh, if you have time to sweat all of the details and, you know, make things as, as good as possible, it can actually like work out. And I'm really grateful to everyone who showed up to the conference in Austin um, like I say, it was June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the University of Texas, co-sponsored by the Harry Ransom Center, um, sponsored a bit by Zero Gram Press. Um, and, you know, the English department here was super helpful to me at, at awesome. UT, uh, including the chair of the Department of English, Martin Kevorkian, who pretty much attended the whole conference mm. wow, um, cool. and gave one of our opening speeches. Um and so I, I want to do a little bit of a recap because I didn't record anything there. You know, I was busy right. kind of um, running the conference, running the conference and making sure <laughs> things went smoothly. I didn't have time yeah. to kind of sit down and do a formal recording as we've done in the past. Yeah. So I want to I want to go through a little bit of that now. And, and also because you weren't there, Dave. Um, yeah. You know, I could speak to I, you. I want you to just like like hit me with a tsunami wave recap All right. of All right. everything well, that went I'll, down. That was awesome. I'll start out by saying. <laughs> You know, by the end of it, I was actually like really emotional and yeah, I, bet. I didn't I bet. expect, I honestly didn't expect this at all because I just been focused on, you know, printing the program and the name tags and will we get catering access and all, all you know, where, yeah. when are people going to deliver the food and stuff? Um, and by the end of it, I was like, holy shit, people actually had a good time and like maybe not just a good time, maybe like a lot of people had a really good time. 
and you know, like a formative time made really good friends and yeah that's cool, like new i hadn't really given any stuff. thought to that and like yeah. looking back on it I, you know i don't want to exaggerate but this is like maybe one of the best weekends of my adult life um <laughs> it, it, it was <laughs> that awesome, good man. I'm um, so glad to hear that because you put so much work well, into this thing. Well, so you like I say, that. it paid off and it's because I'm passionate, you know, about this community and I, I love, you know, bringing these people together. It's been good for, you know, my soul in the past to be around yeah. them. But like yeah. uh, the fact that everyone showed up uh, and the people who came were also positive and, and engaged and on the same page, you know, there was just no like weirdness to me there was everyone was like very cool um yeah. and i and smart and like i learned a lot um so i have printed out a copy of the program here and i'm just gonna like yeah. run through some of the um i do want to mention like pretty much all the presenters there's only like 30 <laughs> 30 names yeah but i bet you half of them are people that we have talked about on the show or had on the show right. before As guests, um, yeah. so you know, the, the, the panels were part of the experience. There was maybe about 60 people total in attendance and like yep. half of them presenters, maybe 30 spread across three days. So that's really only like 10 ish people presenting per day. Um, that's a nice amount. Not and, too much. Yeah. Well, and you don't miss every, everyone is in one room basically. Yeah. You don't miss that. anything. Um, and you're not really rushed for time and there's plenty of breaks and you don't have to start at 8 a.m. and you don't have to go till 6 p.m. Um, yeah. So everyone was pretty flexible with the time. Um, and we had a mix of writers and academics. So there yeah. was some panels that were just um, almost like a book festival, right? Like a Q&A with an author uh, yeah. and then some mixed in with you know, academic stuff about David Foster Wallace. So I'm going to run through it. Day one, first panel of the day was Michael O'Connell um, and a guy hey, named Mike. Jay Ford. And Michael O'Connell, we were just talking about privately, Dave, because he's got a new book coming out called Conversations with George Saunders that he edited, Michael O'Connell edited. That's right. Um, and he was briefly on the show for one of our previous conference, conference recaps, right? Yeah. And we've talked about him lots. Right. And uh, he was talking about... Uh, Buddhism and Saunders and mm, uh, cool. another guy on the panel who I really enjoyed meeting named Jay Ford was talking about uh, Jesuits and Fogel. Um, so it was a really strong panel that we started the day off and that was moderated by our friend and former guest, Chris Pikarski. Oh um, yeah. That makes sense. Um, Big the next guy, the next panel was Corey Hudson and Ryan Kerr both like long time um yes conference attendees <laughs> absolutely all uh moderated by alex moran um and we moved some things around so I'll, i'm not going to go through like i'm just going off what the printed program was um we also had ryan blank there um who has been oh, yeah. many conferences in the past you know i actually like had correspondence with him well before we started the great really? cavity because I saw that he came out with a book called uh, something in the title had to do with supposedly fun thing, but it was like yeah. a riff on supposedly that. Supposedly fun things, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And I just mess. I saw it on Facebook, and I just like messaged him, and I was like, "Hey, you must be a Wallace fan." I am, too. and we just like riffed, and then we emailed, and you know. So and he's I'm a really missed, nice guy. I'm sorry, I missed Ryan. Yeah, and his his great. book was for sale there. Uh, we did. Needed the, the Lego Infinite right. Jest Infinite Lego book right. as well, which I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he was on a panel with a guy named Saul Leslie talking about 
Saul was talking about disability, uh, which was really fascinating. I don't know if there's oh, yeah. ever been a, a Wallace paper on disability. Um, and Saul is a student of David Herring's. So in the oh, UK, cool. yeah. uh, so he, he came over from Liverpool. Uh, and the first day we also had uh, Deb Olin Unferth yeah. um, do a reading. So a former guest of ours. I'm really uh, sad I missed meeting we her. Had, she seems so cool. She was so cool and fun. And Mike Miley yeah. interviewed her. And she right. talked about a short story that she wrote called Deb Olin Unferth. And uh, it's an abs- if you haven't read it, it's an absolutely hilarious. Um, is it different story. from the one Debbie and Unferth is not a fuck up? That's the story. Or is it that one. That's yeah. the one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Debbie and Unferth is not a fuck up. You know, at the Wallace conference, Debbie. We and actually Unferth. didn't talk about that. Story I know. With her when we talked to her, but we totally should have. I know, like, but so good. Mike did at the conference. <laughs> good. Um, okay. uh, we also had a panel, a really interesting panel, at the end of that day, uh, moderated by Andrea. That was, um, and I should say Danielle uh, moderated Ryan's panel with Saul. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alex Moran did a paper on Markson, on David Markson and Dingus McGee, Ballad of Dingus McGee, which was hilarious because <laughs> yeah. he said the word Dingus like a hundred times. Yeah, um, Alex would do that because he's a hilarious British man. Yeah, exactly. But it was, really, it was a really good humor ever. paper on, on David Markson. And then um, oh, sweet. Tim Persson did one on stanley cavell and romanticism yeah. and so again our former guest tim person getting to um have yes, him there. his first wallace conference i'm so excited for him uh, man and we did. we were texting but lead up like hey should we get the same flight down together because we live in the same city and just didn't work out for me this time but um well you should debrief with him yeah you should yeah we're we've been talking about going out for a beer soon so um i really enjoyed getting to meet him and his paper was amazing he's lovely uh, and it was really smart. It actually had a lot to do with, uh, in addition to Cavell and romanticism, like Henry David Thoreau was in there with romanticism. Oh, yeah. um, uh, also on that panel was our Polish friend from Poland named Jarek Hetman. And mm. Jarek's paper was all on Pink Floyd, and it was wild. Uh, and I, and <laughs> yeah. I, I will, can't say I know a lot about Pink Floyd in um, general. That sounds cool. Well, there's a lot of, uh, as he called them, echoes in the work of pink floyd obviously wallace being a kind of a stoner in the 70s mm-hmm. yeah. very familiar with the pink floyd um and pink floyd directly <laughs> does show Wastoid. up yeah. uh, in some of wallace's work right. um and then that night was our keynote jennifer egan and you know jennifer egan being there was just uh, wonderful just Pretty amazing sick. her talk yeah. was amazing and you know she signed books in the ransom center and we had a fellow uh, little what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Reception, you know, in, oh, yeah. the, in the galleries. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, and then the second day, um, you know, we, we had, uh, we were supposed to have Brandon Hobson. That was one of the bad parts. Brandon had to yeah, cancel he had due to, bail to of... COVID exposure. That was only yeah, one, one of the only so down sad. parts. Um, mm. But kind of the keynote of that day was Jim Gower. Yeah, uh, and Jim Gower reading. It was actually his first ever public reading uh, of reading. Yeah, from that's not surprising, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, reading from novel explosives. And uh, what was know, the he, passage that he read? Do you remember what it was about? I'll have to get you the page number, but it was uh, <laughs> it was from the middle of the book, and it was yeah. about uh, Raymond. Um, uh, in, in, there's a description of the small town in Mexico. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it was a great like description of this small town. Uh, I'll have to uh, come back to you on that. I feel bad. Cool. Um, no, that's fine. That's enough. Um, we also had that day um, a panel on Manuel Puig, uh, mm-hmm. which was very interesting, uh, with Caleb Sanford. The Kiss of the Spider Woman? Is that his Yes, main, although we talked about other, yeah. Yeah. other works yeah. of his. Cool. Um, and a woman named Sage in- Ingberg. And mm-hmm. Sage and Caleb also coincidentally not just wrote on Puig, but uh, both from Colorado, okay. living in Colorado at the same time. Kind awesome. of crazy. Um, That's cool. We had a Canadian paper, Role of Canada in Infinite Jest, uh, by right. a guy named uh, Gianluca Bertoia. And Gianluca mm. was just an amazing guy to meet, super interesting guy. His paper was fantastic. You would have loved it. Yeah. Dude. Was he um, from Montreal? Um, he lived all over Canada, but not Montreal. Oh. Um, but AFR, but he, the AFR French AFR that he read, the French that he read was like amazing. Like his French pronunciation was impeccable. Wow. We had another guy in that panel, Christopher White. Uh, Hannah Smart was there. She did an interesting thing about comedy and tragedy. Um, awesome. I got so glad to hear Hannah made it out. I know Hannah's a huge yeah. Wallace nut on Twitter, Which, and we've had some correspondence with Hannah. Hannah, that's great. I'm excited. Uh, and she had been at the Amsterdam conference as well. That's right. Yeah, I saw that. Very cool. Um, I got to speak through fill. some of these people. I feel bad, but Matthew Duffus was there. Pia was there from Italy. Yeah, uh, Pia. Her paper was great. great. Emilio's paper was amazing. Um, yep. Uh, Local Jer- Austinite. Right. Uh, and he also did a tour of the Ransom Center. He's a docent at the Ransom Center. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Love that word, docent. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Uh, Joe Neary, really great paper he did on good old neon. Um, mm-hmm. Really enjoyed his paper and getting to meet Joe. Um, ben Zimmerman's paper, as you can imagine, was incredible. Ben's is super smart. Um, Ben's very young, right? Uh, he's an undergrad. Like now, uh, like 21 or 2, I would guess. Uh, so, but he was like, like a that. teenager when he started emailing us as a listener of the show, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I... Cool helped a bit with his undergraduate i mean his high school that's right yeah 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 totally which was fantastic uh but this he talked a lot about uh calvino uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, awesome hyper metafiction um and like i say jim gower was also on that day um yeah which was just incredible having jim there and jim stayed through the whole conference and was really engaged and asked questions of other presenters and really uh you know didn't just show up for his reading and disappear he stuck around the whole conference that's awesome Um, and meredith was there with him too right meredith was there as well Um, on saturday we had danielle's uh presentation which was called keep wallace studies weird which was like uh a really great presentation but also then combined with like a game show called uh (laughs) the price is water uh and that was a really fun way to start out the morning Oh, Danielle. And then uh, we had Peyton Thomas on after that. And Peyton's uh, presentation was he did like a workshop on fan fiction. And I learned so much about the history and current state of fan fiction, which is mostly like run like 
something like 60% of all fan fiction is on like lesbian websites or like is okay. dominated by interesting fact. Yeah. Women and like queer people. Hmm. Like that's cool. That's really cool. And, and you know, the, the history of it is a lot of like, you know, shipping of gay character or characters who are hetero and like, you know, writing fiction that makes them gay or, mm. or you know, puts them in gay situations. And, and so we learned a lot about, you know, the history of queer, uh, writers interacting with um fan fiction it was really fun and we got to Very write cool. our own fan fiction and share it i heard about friends. that so and peyton is the is the like enigmatic figure behind the american doll yes instagram dolls, account dolls that books keeps yeah. posting how in candenza is like an american and, doll and, and how in candenza was there he brought we had a lot how. of back and forth uh peyton and i through the society instagram <laughs> Yeah. He's like, I can't believe you keep liking my photos. Like, how is this a thing that yeah. the Wall of Society is interested in this stuff that I'm posting? <laughs> uh, awesome. And, and Peyton it. is also the author of like a, a really fantastic YA novel. Um, the, the novel was there and sold out. I wish we'd had more copies mm. of, of that book. Um, uh, I did one panel that day, which was moderating our doing like a Q and a with Dario. So Dario Diofebi was there and like so Jim, good. uh, was Dario was there the whole conference and super engaged. And like his reading was fantastic. He did different voices of the different characters in the book. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, uh, I really, uh, you know, enjoyed getting to talk to him again about paradise, Nevada. Yeah. Um, and it was really just an honor, you know, to have him there. Um, yeah. A lot of the rest of that day was about film. So we had Steve Lively, who I feel like I've known online forever, do yes, a paper totally. um, about John Krasinski's movie, which not a lot of people have actually done critical work on. Kras- yeah. Like, is Krasinski's book, I mean, movie so bad? Time, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, why is it so yeah. bad? And, and Steve yeah. Lively went into that. Um, and oh, then, I'm sorry, I missed Steve meeting Steve. Yeah, it was He's great. A big supporter of us. And then Matt Luter's paper about cable fiction and Tristan and televisual <laughs> mythology was, you know, as you can imagine, just oh, lights out, like just so good. Yeah, totally. uh, and really like Matt just needs to keep doing more stuff on cable fiction because no one does it better than him. And like, there's not really a, a book of academic cable fiction. So it was so good. Um, and Michelle Martin was also on that panel and her paper was amazing about eternal sunshine. One of my favorite movies. That's right. I love it. Um, and uh, brief interview number 20, which is one of my favorite pieces of Wallace's writing and eternal sunshine again, uh, the granola cruncher. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had a feeling, but I just wanted to, and then we had like three other great things on this day happen. One was, maybe at least two. One was um, our last panel of the day was Milena Duchovny from Argentina. And she did a paper on uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. And we actually screened the whole movie of Videodrome (laughs) before her paper, which is like an hour and a half movie. And I've just never been to a conference before where it's like, oh, we're going to do a paper on this movie. Let's just show the movie. I bet Mike Miley loved that. He's such a nut for that director. It's a pretty bananas movie if you haven't seen it like there's I've some heard that i've not seen sexual it. violence going on in the movie mm-hmm. some actual violence some really creepy um body horror stuff going on mm-hmm. and some people it was a little too much for like it was some content warnings we had to put out there um yeah. 
but her paper was you know combined with uh, or or her looked at infinite jest as well mm-hmm. and body horror stuff uh and there yeah, there's, there's a definitely lot. some of that <laughs> well and, and, oh, and televisual stuff too and fascism like there's a lot going on in both of those artworks um the other big thing of that day in the, in the afternoon is we had the world premiere of justin warsh's movie which is called extended play or a trailer for infinite jest the motion picture and right. justin created this trailer for infinite jest that is sort of like if infinite jest was made into a movie and then you cut it down into a trailer this is like the three or four minute like long version of the trailer right. and it Jeez. is it was shot on film not on digital video and edited you know over a period of time he's been working on this for like three or four years mm-hmm. and he had brought a lot of props and storyboards from the movie and so cool. we had one room in the conference center that was like devoted to the props from the movie um which were you know really amazing like 80s late 80s early 90s aesthetic like mm-hmm. the cartridge right the, uh even the ETA the logo shirts, tennis shirts right? were like super nineties looking. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, uh, infinite Jess playing on this old kind of looking monitor. Uh, and he had, you know, a costume of a guy in a wheelchair, like a mannequin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the veil he had custom created these veils, like for Madame psychosis. <laughs> um, but yeah. the movie itself, I think will be in wider release soon online. Um, and I hope everyone gets to see it because it's probably, you know, it, it, it is. It is not just probably. It is the best adaptation visually of Infinite Jest that I've ever seen. Mm. And so the fact that we got to premiere that at the conference was was amazing. So I know I've talked That's too awesome. long about this. But again, uh, if you don't like it, we'll give you the time code. You can skip ahead to the Christian Tabordo <laughs> interview probably like 30 minutes in. Um, but it was a yeah, big deal I was just thinking about me. the... The episode, the title of this episode will be episode sixty-seven, Christian Tabordo, brackets, and a lot about DFW twenty twenty-two. Well, again, I mean, That's I could great. I talk about it for days. Um, Is Justin going to team up with Michael Sure? Do you think, uh, like, pitch him this four-minute clip and be like, "Let's work on this together"? It's really its own thing. It's really yeah. its own thing. It's, it's Does he have f- any intention to like make it into a? It's it's a film, really or... fully formed thing, even though it's you know yeah. it's not a feature. Um, yeah. I think that's part of the reason why, like, uh, uh, maybe Infinite Jest would never be a great film, but it would be yeah. a good movie trailer. Like, it could be a good trailer, right. like three or four minutes. Or a good, like, mini series. Even that. Even that. It's not going to be as good could as be a t- Oh, yeah. It's too I much mean, going on in that's, the book. That's the problem with adaptations, almost always. Yeah. Um, but so thank you to everyone who came to the conference. Again, there's too many people to name. I could go through the list of everyone who did attend. <laughs> Uh, I didn't even mention yeah. all the moderators, you know, in here. Right, Short, yeah. Uh, yeah. Grace Chipperfield, um, Alex Moran, uh, all the people who helped out, you know, on the committee. Corey Hudson, Andrea, mm-hmm. um, you know, Emilio was a big help to me. Mike Miley yeah. was a big help to me. Megan Barnard, Martin Kavorkian, Allard, Diego, uh, everyone who helped was uh, just really so great to me. And um mm-hmm. I'm so proud of the way that it turned out. That's awesome, man. So happy that it went so swimmingly. 
Um, did Diego make it to the conference? Was he there? No, but he was on a lot of our planning committees. You know, he was okay, on a lot yeah, of our yeah. planning. So. Sweet. Um, Who came the furthest? Was it Grace Chipperfield? Grace Chipperfield. Adelaide, she came Australia. the furthest from anywhere in the world, yeah. Yeah, well, we did have people there. Her commitment's there, outstanding. Uh, like I say, from Italy, Poland, yeah. Argentina, the UK, Canada. Um, so for only like 60 people, we still had yeah. it represented like seven countries, eight countries. Um and, and that, that means a lot, too. And that shows a lot of, you know, diversity in our mm-hmm. attendees. That's awesome. Very cool. Several from Canada. Actually, Jean-Luca lives in Canada, and Peyton yeah. lives in Canada. Tim Persson lives in Canada. Peyton lives in Canada? Yep. Where? Toronto, yeah. I think. Toronto. Oh, cool. So. I didn't know that. Sweet. Uh, well, should have been one more Canadian, for fuck's sake. But uh, next, next time we'll life, we'll announce some future dates. Way of living. <laughs> we did announce, you know, the 2023 conference will be in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Vern Sisney right. is our chair. Um, yeah. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is like kind of near Baltimore, DC, okay. Philadelphia. It's not like near a major airport, so it will involve some driving. We got to figure that out a bit. I'm not mm. sure yet if I'm going to go into Baltimore or DC or Philadelphia. I got to figure that oh, out, yeah. but um, probably DC. Um, but we we will have a good time at Gettysburg College, um, and we're we're you know in the advanced stages of having that that conference planned uh, out completely. So we do hope people uh, make the trip to Gettysburg next summer yeah we will definitely plug that as the day gets closer all here on the show for sure cool all right let's get to christian tabordo wonderful conference yeah we have christian tabordo coming up here's our interview uh before we do i just want to say matt um congratulate happy anniversary uh one year this month as concavity show since we kind of like uh did a did a little switch or whatever um without further ado i guess um here's us talking to Christian Tabordo about the apology. Okay, well, welcome everybody to episode 67 of Concavity Show. We are here again with Christian Tabordo. Christian, welcome back. You were our guest exactly two years ago this month, uh, July 2020, and that was episode 55. So it's great to have you back, man. Thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I missed you guys. Been, yeah, we missed you too, man. Uh, so much so that I've listened to all your podcast appearances this week, uh, oh. just to just to like refresh and you know get reacquainted with you and uh, and just been excited for this conversation for a long time. So you're it's telling me I can't repeat any stories? Well, you, you can. Other people <laughs> won't know you're repeating them. I'm not going to flag them, so don't worry. I, I'm not going to sell you out. I would man. actually encourage you if you have any good answers to repeat them from previous podcasts. Um, you got it sure you've probably polished them and like you know stayed awake at night thinking about how you might answer <laughs> differently <laughs> i know i would <laughs> not if i was you i just mean for myself you know? uh yeah i was watching clips of a willie nelson concert last night on the 4th of july and i was thinking this dude has played the same songs at every concert he's ever done for like the past 48 years and like does he ever get tired of singing the same songs like always on my mind blue eyes crying in the rain whiskey river it's the same like set list almost um uh, for 40 years and like 
And like, when was Willie's last album? But I if you no went idea. to a Willie Nelson, Nelson concert like and he didn't play On the Road Again, you'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? Like, so I encourage people, like, it takes, I think, great courage and bravery to keep playing the same old hits uh, year after year. So I would sure. encourage you. Yeah. Uh, no, welcome. So, Christian, we're here to talk about your new book, um, uh, The Apology, the which apology. was published. Uh, in 2021 from Astrophil Press at the University of South Dakota. And uh, Christian, for those of maybe who didn't join us two years ago in the middle of COVID when we were talking about um, Ghost Engine, uh, Christian Tabordo is author of six previous books, um, including the novel Tufflehoma, which we also talked about. Tufflehoma was the winner of the Rescue Press Open Prose Series Award. And Ghost Engine, Book of Stories, which won the Bright Edge Fiction Prize. He used to live in Chicago, now lives in upstate New York. Christian, thank you again for being um, here with us today. Thank you. So the apology. Yeah, you've been kind of kind of busy lately. Busy year yeah. for you. you. Just moved yes. states, moved jobs, yeah. put out a book. Um, Anything else? Anything else exciting that's been going on? For it's you? not enough. Um, I'm I'm going to look at a, look at houses tomorrow. So yeah. whoa, yeah, real estate. Let's go. Yeah. That is exciting. Very cool. Uh, what precipitated the move? Was was it job related primarily? Um, it was you know family wanted to be you know my my son really wanted to be back among his extended family and yeah. um, I was kind of uh, burned out on academia and. Sure. Um, yeah, was, that seems reasonable. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, my priority being my family and then my writing, uh, yeah. I felt like the, the best thing for me to, was to just kind of move on. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Are you back in the world of marketing again or doing uh, it, something it, like it, academia? In a manner. I'm, I'm doing yeah. uh, writing for a university, but it's a like technical writing, like a science writing, but it's, it is kind of marketing based, but it's more journalistic oh, yeah. this time. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. Are you excited about that job change? I, I, I'm good. loving it so far. They leave awesome. me alone in a room all day to write. And cool. like I spent like the last week figuring out what protein folding is and then explaining how it's relevant <laughs> to the, the you know contemporary life. And um, that, okay. that actually comes up quite a bit in the um, uh, biography of David Foster Wallace, which is DT Max, oh. um, which uh, his protein folding. Yes, because DT Max previously wrote a book called The Family That Couldn't Sleep about a disease mm-hmm. called fatal familial insomnia, which is a prion disease, um, which is prions is related to the way proteins fold. Um, and oh, so wow. protein folding uh, is the cause of a lot of degenerative neurological diseases and fatal, mm-hmm. uh, usually fatal incurable diseases, um, mad cow disease, uh, any kind of prion disorder is really scary because there's no cure and really maybe no way to prevent getting some of these that are hereditary. Uh, so protein folding, I did learn about from uh, DT Max. See? Hmm. It's very literary. very literary. Way to tie it back to to the old guy. That's I mean, amazing. horrible uh, disease of someone who couldn't sleep. Like, literally. <laughs> oh, yeah, that just, sounds It affects, like, horrific. a small clan uh, in Italy. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the apology. <laughs> the apology. Uh, I got to tell you, Christian, when I picked this book up and started reading it, fucking loved it. Um, yeah, it was like you. I just read it in like Abs- three, two to three sittings. Absolutely love this book. And it's so different than all like your, all your other work. It feels like so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
not to say that like I didn't like your other work too. I love it. We've talked about it. Um, yeah, we uh, we got pretty. Um, we really um, pumped your tires on the last time of Ghost <laughs> Engine. I listened back to it today, and I was like, oh yeah, we we gave we we made Christian feel good. I think and that's <laughs> that's what we're here to do is to make you look excited. But I feel good. like you know you're taking a lot of risks in those stories, and you're trying a lot of mm. experimental um, ideas and really pushing the envelope. And in a way, this felt much more um, controlled. Obviously, it's more realistic. Mm-hmm. It's more straightforward. It's an office novel in some ways. Uh, it's a philosophical it's novel. It's nothing like wildly off the wall, like magic wise. It's mm-hmm. like pretty. It's pretty much like realism, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's deeply philosophical, and we'll get into some of that. But I uh, was kind of surprised. So walk us through. You know, when you're writing, when you're trying a story, did this start <laughs> out as just a story, or was this uh, an idea that kind of came to you fully formed. Uh, definitely nothing has ever come to me fully formed. I don't think so. Um, but I mean, I, I probably said in our last interview, uh, that things usually start with a line for me. Um, yes, right. and like an opening the, uh, line. Yeah. And yeah. the, uh, I actually started with, if you want to get to the bottom of this stock stocking business, you should talk to Kit Carson. And within three pages, I was on the chemical <laughs> warfare stuff. So I went back and put that in front and then moved forward. Oh, yeah. um, and so uh, it really was very, very freestyle. Um, but there was, in this sense, a kind of intent to um, this. This actually was written before Tough Lahoma. Wow. Right. Um, yeah. So this is like and, you wrote this like six ish years ago, seven ish years uh, ago, and then I, kind of reworked it in the last while. No, I think I had an absolute finished draft about six years ago. The the yeah. first draft was probably about a decade ago. Um, yeah, well, and it was, but it, I had done like you know three very very weird books, and <laughs> um, had started to get a little bit of attention for the, for those earlier books, and was like the weirdest thing I could do right now is to write something entirely set in the real world that yeah. nobody has to ask how or or what happened. You know what I mean? Um, and so there was a kind of it, 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 as unolipian as it sounds that there was an actual ge- gen, uh, generic constraint involved which is yeah. don't let yourself fly off the handle and so <laughs> um i don't know if you'll remember that there's a scene where to me it's a very trippy scene late in the novel when his father suddenly shows up um and things start to seem a little off and weird um but uh-huh. but there's nothing that couldn't conceivably happen. And that's, that, yeah. that was my constraint for this book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a, um, an epiphany moment in that mm-hmm. scene. You're like, Oh, now I understand the context of the protagonist, Mike Long's like living situation. I didn't realize that he lived with his father until the scene uh-huh. comes quite a bit later in the book. Right. So there are a few like pieces of that scene that kind of blow your mind a bit. Um, but it's not like, um, you know, levitation. Or like <laughs> and that, there's also you know? a scene mm. late in the book where there's a line right in the book um, where, you know, it's hard to talk about this book without not spoiling it, but um, there, there's a scene later in the book where he's at the sort of climax in the book and imagining what could have happened. And I was almost felt like you were on the precipice of like, and I imagined it all. It was all just a dream. And I, but you don't go that far. <laughs> it's like, imagine, mm-hmm. imagine, 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 and then stop right at the edge of, what a character is imagining rather than like the whole, mm-hmm. the writer is imagined the whole thing. Right. Um, even though it is like edging imagined, obviously yeah. it's not um, a documentary uh, that we're reading. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's rewind maybe a little bit and give uh, 
listeners a context like what is this book about what is kind of who are the characters what's the plot um and that i feel like it was tough to summarize like whoever wrote the jacket how would you how would you give like a couple sentence recap of this book uh, christian or i i honestly think oh if Matt, if you want to take a crack at it, you're welcome to. <laughs> you know, I, I was actually struggling with this. Hoping to pit you against each other. I actually feel like whoever wrote the jacket copy on this did a pretty good job because the, the little blurb that's on the back of the, the galley is really good. Um, but it is, I would describe it as an office novel. It is about um, a guy. It's a first person narrative of a guy who describes himself as a philosopher, maybe amateur philosopher. Um, and he gets <laughs> caught up in... Um, uh, a situation with a woman in the office uh, and uh, the apology is a reference to Plato's apology, Socrates uh, dialogue. So there's definitely um, the philosophy stuff we'll talk about. And um, they like in the Greek Chili's sense, plays the apology, a serious yeah, role in the book. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk about some as does Frost, Applebee's Frosty Marks and Skillet <laughs> Queso at Chili's uh, Subway also does. So a lot of American restaurant chains show up in this book too. Um, yeah, they're... Uh, I'm curious to mind their relationship to philosophers like, like Hegel and Wittgenstein and <laughs> that you bring up in the book. Descartes. Well, I mean, that, and, you know, it's it, as, as you know, this is just total nerdery, but the, the reason that the, the, those restaurants keep coming back is because I'm, I was trying to evoke repetition by Kierkegaard, like the, wow. the concept oh, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> whether you can create a repetition. Wow. But... <laughs> uh, eternal return. Through pictures of beer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot going on. I actually think there's a lot going on here um, in this book with a really relatively simple setup. Uh, I think in the first few mm-hmm. pages, a reader might liken it to some of like being John Netmalkovich or you know, bits of like office space characters. And then clearly you get in the head of this one guy and you do get a lot of his backstory. Um, and the thing is written as a sort of a confession, a defense of, of his actions. So it's written almost like retroactively after something has happened. Um, yeah. Uh, it feels to me a little bit like I recently reread the outsiders because I was teaching it to like eighth grade students or ninth nice. grade students, eighth grade. And, uh, you know, at the end of The Outsiders, like, you get this kind of mind-blowing moment where you realize that the whole book that you've just read was an ex- was an assignment for an English teacher. And, uh-huh. like, the book restarts, and then the whole first, like, intro sentence series gets rewritten, and you're like, oh, and you flip back, and you're like, whoa, that's cool. There's almost kind of like a recursive element mm-hmm. in this book as well. I'm not going to spoil that too much, but um, that's sort of like a... Like Matt was saying, like, it was kind of like a callback, like um, sort of a remembrance, like a journal entry style mm-hmm. to this book. Yeah. Yeah, no, so it's... Re- recounts the events leading up to the event. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that was the only, the, the, the only thing that I was having trouble, the thing that took me a while, like from the f- completion of the first draft to the very last draft was um, I hadn't decided where the narrator was at the end. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, so, I mean... Maybe I won't spoil it. I'm not that big on that, but it is kind of key to understanding the book and key to any tension in the book as as to where mm-hmm. he's telling you the story from. So maybe we can put up like a spoiler shield near the end of the conversation. <laughs> and say, okay, like uh, we're going to talk about the ending now. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want spoilers, like 
stop now, write down the time signature, come back later after you finish reading it. And, okay, go. Well, I, I think in a way it's a spoiler alert just to say that it's related to Socrates. And if anyone is familiar uh-huh. with how Socrates' <laughs> trial works out, uh, and, you know, there's a little... Uh, you have already mentioned chemical weapons, which in Socrates' case is <laughs> a chemical called hemlock. Um, yeah, plant. Uh, and it's a pretty great... Uh, chemical weapon homemade chemical weapon in this this (laughs) floor ammo ammo. Um, uh, but but give us some of your thoughts so i mean your your interest in philosophy i think comes through in a lot of your work but it's pretty differently handled here um Mm -hmm. uh, give us some of just where your your head was at when you i don't know wanted to engage with descartes and plato and socrates and uh, apparently kierkegaard Mm. (laughs) William Mbakum comes up. <laughs> well, so Kierkegaard has again. to be, Kierkegaard gets one mention in the book, one direct mention in the book. Um, and an epigraph too, right? Yes. And yeah. I mean, he's, Kierkegaard's my hero, you know, um, but he's also, impression. his whole thing is indirect communication. You know what I mean? And to some degree, I was trying to rewrite the, the seducer's diary, um, which is the kind of philosophical no, novella that ends uh, his, his, the first half of his book either, or, um, but okay. I wanted to write it as though the seducer believed himself to be in control of the situation, but actually was not in control of the situation, and that the seducee was actually in control. Um, but that's that's much too heady. Like the, philosoph- the, the philosophical jokes, to the extent that they work, uh, should work because I don't believe in communicating directly, and my narrator... <laughs> has less ability to manipulate that and so he's wrong about just about everything you know what i mean yeah so, like like <laughs> yeah, like he's a he's kind of a tool the narrator right yeah. he's kind of <laughs> like a, a toxic masculinity figure in a lot of ways right like his yeah. brain voice is is kind of gross um uh-huh. so you know that i have some questions related to that too but yeah like, <laughs> you're filtering this philosophical stuff who guys actually guy i don't think he's that bad i don't think he's that bad i mean he I think he's worse at the beginning, and then as the book goes on, you start to feel more sympathy for him. I don't know. I, I think that. He, but there are some moments he for clearly sure where restrains like, oh, himself. Guy's though he could have voice sucks. But he, <laughs> but his action again. It's actions versus words, and like his actions, he clearly restrains mm. himself from the very worst of what he could do. Um, and I actually found myself rooting for him, and like I actually <laughs> yeah. really wanted him to be successful in his seduction. Um, but he wasn't the one being like, he was the seduced, right? It was flipped and that he, Mm -hmm. even though he was maybe a stalker, um, I didn't find that like really that bad. (laughs) I just found that it's like, there's a great day stalking. Like that just in the days of like Facebook stalking, it's like, sure. Right. Yeah, that's true. There's such a great, um, building of tension in this book about like the new, girl in the office i'm air quoting girl because there's a whole thing around that the new woman in the office who gets hired and the tension about mike the protagonist like actually getting to see her is such a slow like long build and it's a great payoff it's like so cathartic when it finally resolves because you've been waiting for so long and and the tension is built so extremely um but yeah like he he's kind of a tool he's kind of like a, maybe a despicable narrator. Some people might say, but like maybe not as bad as like Humbert Humbert, you know, like he's not like a massive <laughs> I, pedophile or something. I don't think but he like... does that much bad stuff. Honestly, I think he's a, 
I'm, I, see, I'm splitting the difference. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I have to, I have to, you know, sympathize with him to some degree, some degree because all, all of his thoughts come from me. You know what I mean? So I know, um, yeah, uh, so, yeah. Where but, do you like? What ether are you tapping into to like uh, put this guy's brain voice on the page? Is it kind of like a, you know, like G.K. Chesterton uh, story where he was asked by like a famous London newspaper to like write a big piece on what was wrong with the world, and he just wrote back, "Dear sirs, I am." <laughs> it's this kind of very like christian idea of like i'm a sinner i recognize my fallenness kind mm-hmm. of a thing uh-huh. is there an element of that to the brain voice because i know that you have a very like um deep theological background uh yeah i mean matt here i'll give you a couple of examples of what i mean like the words tits and ass are used quite frequently in the book in reference to women and women having them um there's a section where april's walking arm in arm with him and he says um, that her breasts feel like warm, soggy Cap'n Crunch <laughs> against his He does own. use the word breasts a lot, though. And I, his, I think that's... And his <laughs> pants get tight quite often. I think that's a normal and, and that's male reaction, but you're ways. in his head. He doesn't do anything bad with that. He's not a rapist. He's not. He doesn't sexually yeah, assault anyone. Totally. He does get in one fist fight. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, it even, even the victim sure. agrees it was justified. So <laughs> That's true. Kick. Casey does. Um, I, I'm gonna let. They refer to women as dogs. At one point, she's not a dog. Like you know. Let him without sin cast the first stone on that. (laughs) Hey man, I'm not saying. But it's. it's, I mean, it's funny that you guys are no longer uh, explicitly devoted to the work of DFW because, you know, I was like, uh, not fully prepared to elaborate last time. But you know, I I Mm -hmm. thought about brief interviews constantly while writing this. Yeah, okay, um, that makes a and, great deal of sense to me that um, he, Mike Long, could be one of the hideous men. Yeah, and I, and yeah. um, there, you know, I, it's I, I used to joke that that book would have been more daring if he had just called it "Brief Interviews with Men," um, just because I think the um, mm-hmm. there's they were hideous, but there's also a lot of truth in what he was describing there, and but like I was just trying to look hideous? at that, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think the yeah. um, you know, some of the office parts too get to the um. The sort of boredom of life in uh, the Pale King too, which is an office novel, um, and y- you clearly have some experience with this because I felt like you nailed a lot of the, <laughs> the office culture um, and just how banal and yet um, dramatic it seems to the people who are living in it. Right, like mm-hmm. a lot of people don't—I wouldn't say don't like office novels, but feel like you know <clears throat> they just perpetuate like stereotypes. So, like, how did you mm-hmm. break out of that idea of just not doing, like, I don't know, you know, you've watched The Office, like, you know that there's mm-hmm. like, these stereotypical, like, here we get the sarcastic secretary or whatever. How did uh-huh, you deal with that? Uh-huh. Well, some of it, some of it was that I um, am actually not that familiar with the canon of The Office, like, the concept office in popular culture. So I have watched, I watched, you know, the British office re- religiously. Mm, I don't think best. I've ever seen the American so version of the office. I've never seen office space. Um, mm. So I knew that I was probably dabbling in tropes at times, um, <laughs> but I was trying to keep myself, there was for a good long time, I was trying to decide whether I was actually going to introduce the woman into the, into the story. Um, or just there was keep a, that mystery yeah, going. And, yeah. And I decided that that was kind of breaking the, the kind of rule that I had made for myself that, everything was going to have to be possible. You know what I mean? It, it, it was like too Kafka-esque to have the woman never show up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, 
but but because of that i dragged it out as long as i could who knows if it was you know slightly too long or whatever but but um but but that allowed me to keep what goes on on a business level in the office at a certain level of abstraction like in the in the in the British version of the office, they still have to talk about paper sometimes. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and they have to talk about paper to show you that most of the time they're fucking around and not talking about paper. Um, <laughs> whereas, like, no no one would be able to guess what is actually being accomplished in the office I'm describing. And it, it's supposed to kind of push you further into the head of, of my narrator. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, that that's something that I thought you were very good at... Um keeping at bay and building um you know tension and suspicion around and uh i i wanted to um to ask you a little bit about that that idea of just building suspense because you know you alluded it to it with the girl whose name is um april curtis um and mm-hmm. i i, I went back and looked at some like um aristotle's poetics right where he says in like mm-hmm. act one you're like asking a question Right. In act two, you're like building the suspense. And then in act three, you sort of answer that question. Like, does, you know, is, is Hamlet's father still alive or is he a ghost? Or, and like, I feel like you subvert that structure a bit where you're asking a question for a long time, building suspense for a long time. And then a lot of the stuff get answer, gets answered, um, you know, anticlimactically or right at the end do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. um and yeah. so like how were you thinking about that um as a novel because again i i thought of you when i first read you as like primarily like short story writer but um mm-hmm. how do you see that like structure working for you well i i think i'm you know i've internalized aristotle um because i may be like the only person who spent a huge chunk of his career as a creative writing teacher who still teaches Aristotle to some degree. Uh, okay, I, yeah. I, I teach him mostly to teach against him um, uh, <laughs> or, or to teach that this is just one of many possibilities. You know what I mean? Um, okay. I would often like juxtapose sections from the poetics with like Artaud's theory of cruelty and theater of cruelty and whatnot. Well, and know? I think Aristotle, um, even in the poetics says, this isn't the only way he's saying, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is what I have observed the way that plays work. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, and we're still dealing with, you know tragedy in the poetics and i write comedy you know what i mean and so the the kind of it, it kind of begs for but i so i wasn't like you know wednesday corresponds to act three or anything like that but i was i am aware of that tradition and <laughs> yeah the, um you know it's this this book was very difficult to sell like the reason that when dave asked i i, I was like matt you go ahead and describe it is because i can't describe <laughs> um <laughs> well i mean part of the reason that it, it sat around for a while you know i got to I had agents coming at me when my when my first collection came out and this was the book I had. You know what I mean? Right. And I would send them the one paragraph description I had and they were like, no, you know, <laughs> that's, not, that's not interesting. You know, um, and, you know, I've, I've actually had small presses be like, you know, it, they would read it and they would be like, we read this um, because we know that you've published good work, not because of the description you sent us. And we want you to know. <laughs> that the book is more interesting than your description of it. It's so. riding your laurels. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I kind of get that just because I think all of the, the, the best books that I've read are really hard to summarize. And no, no matter how long that they are, um, you know, what keeps a person turning pages is like, if you can identify with the voice, if the voice of it keeps you going. Um, and and mm-hmm. this clearly did. And 
you mentioned the first um, page of it where uh, the line that came to you is about the stalking business. Talk to Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is kind of the foil of Mike, who's the yeah, protagonist. Totally. He's kind of the antagonist in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah. he's abbreviated as KC, which sounds like Casey in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that because, like, uh, I grew up partly in Colorado where Kit Carson's like a bit of a um, uh, controversial figure. Um, okay. And, like, there's a big. There's a real oh, Kit yeah, Carson? Oh, yeah. He was an old West guy, killed a lot of Indians and, you know, settled the West and stuff. Oh, geez. And uh, okay. the real Kit Carson, you know, there's a lot of stuff named after him, like Carson City, Nevada, Fort Carson, Colorado. Oh, okay. um, was your level of familiarity with this history high? Yes, going I'm into just saying, yeah, there's a whole Christian? count. I, I, you're asking me. I'm like, I thought I, thought <laughs> I was being <laughs> Did you name this character after that? Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely did. Um, but the thing is, is, uh, you know, uh, while aware that no frontiersman um, had a clean mm. record, you know what I mean? I don't know much about him as an actual historical figure. Mm. Um, I was directly kind of riffing on the fact that there was a totally laudatory uh, television show about him in like the, mm. I think it was the yeah. 50s or 60s. And I remember catching it on Nick at Night. And, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, knowing that, um, there was no chance that he was as good as presented on that show oh, yeah. uh, was kind of the impetus. But it's also um, and this this goes back to just complete uh, generative things. It doesn't have any real bearing on the content of the novel. It also the the book enacts the history of the television show Knight Rider. Um, so um, <laughs> Kit Kit was the, the car in Knight Rider um, right. and uh, April. April Curtis and Bonnie Barstow were at various times in the series, the, um, the kind of special assistants of the, of the kind of Knight Rider operation. And they were, you know, Bonnie Barstow right. replaced April Curtis. And so all the names, every name in the book comes See, from Knight now Rider. Now this sounds like a Christian Tabordo book. It's like, <laughs> yeah, now, now this sounds somewhere. like a Christian see, Tabordo I, book. <laughs> see, I totally sublimated the Tabordoness of it though. You see? Like, yeah, totally. I, and I mean, the interesting thing to me about that is like, you know, when you know someone who has like the same name as a as a figure or a character, mm-hmm. um, like mm-hmm. I knew a guy in Colorado whose name was Tom Mix, and Tom Mix is like he was a descendant of the real Tom Mix. Tom Mix was like old West cowboy like performer as mm-hmm. well, okay. and uh, even in Infinite Jest, right? There's John, no relation Wayne. There's John Wayne, and like you know someone <laughs> with his name, yeah. and like when I would think of Tom Mix, I'm like I'm thinking of not him but this other person, right? There's this sort of disembodied, <laughs> yeah, okay. you know, element where you're never fully your own identity. You're sort of embodying this other, yeah. you know, you've, you've got this other almost like ghost that you inhabit. Uh, and right. Well, Kit in this novel is kind of like a hick in some ways, right? Like he's got like kind of the, the dirty hat. And he smells like cat piss. And <laughs> some of his mannerisms kind of, you know, man, signal you're really to down you on that, this that guy, might man. become... I, <laughs> no, Kit. I'm talking about Kit Carson. Oh, don't Kit, you think? For sure. I'm I thought you were Mike talking about Knight Rider. Yeah, I thought yeah, you were yeah. talking about Knight Rider. No, Mike, no. It's confusing no. because the there's... Foil, the foil, the antagonist I'm talking there's about. There's Kit, and then there's yeah. Knight Rider himself, which they call him Knight Rider, Mike Rider, because he's often the designated driver. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, yeah, that and that's a lot f- of fun. When you're talking about writing comedy rather than, than tragedy, like, this is definitely not... Um, a tragedy uh 
Mm-hmm. But no. it is like a, a confession. And most like mm-hmm. confessions you don't think of as comedic. And one, you know, I do think I am drawn to first person narratives. Like uh, maybe a lot yeah. of creative writing teachers would steer people away from that. I think there's maybe objectively it's harder to write third person, but I started noticing that, you know, right away, this has got the word you in it. Like it's addressed to you, like you mm-hmm. might second person. Yeah, right. Reader. So like, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Is that just, you know, the style when you started writing first person as a confession and then addressing it to someone else? I mean, that's also like ancient Greek. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was always <laughs> intended to sound like that and it, and it is meant to sound like a confession and like a much more direct confession than for example, like Socrates's apology or whatever. Um, but it's, uh, there's probably a vestige that, that was probably spurred on to some degree. It's more like um, Augustinian. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that's yeah. a, like, a, I'm the, you know, the Mike Long, the, the narrator has enough delusion of grandeur to imagine that he's offering <laughs> spiritual guidance to people. You know what I mean? Um, but there's also this, you know, yeah. there's also this sense that he's, you know, he's doing, uh, he's, he's retroactively justifying these things too, you know? So, so, um, so he, you know, he wants to sound like he's explaining things that were inevitable and necessary, but also is, you know, kind of covering up for things. Um, but th- there was also like, there are vestiges there of the, the original idea was that, Knight Rider was writing to the head of Knight Ritter newspapers, which I believe in Dutch was pronounced Knight Rider anyway, but I don't know. I don't even know <laughs> if that organization exists anymore. But like they used to own all the newspapers and like the, the idea was that he was going to be sending it to the news to be broadcast. And then I was like, that's that's one step too 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 many levels of narrative. And I'll just leave the you in and, and let you be the reader, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um <laughs> Like I said, there's a lot going on in this book, uh, e- even though it's short. I mean, I think it's um, probably a selling point for all those presses who missed out that it's 177 pages. Um, uh, yeah, it's very I, short. I did, though, want to ask you um, a little bit more about some of the philosophy that's in here, because, again, this guy has a lot of um, kind of amateurish philosophical ideas that he's trying <laughs> to maybe map onto his actions. Um, and at mm-hmm. one point he explains an idea that comes to him about how um, the world doesn't really exist. And mm-hmm. maybe the real world does exist at some point for him, but uh, in a world that did exist, he's almost like a better person when the world doesn't exist. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. like if he has to confront the reality that all of these things did happen and they do exist, then maybe it's not so great for him, but he's able to sort of justify mm-hmm. in a way mentally that actually it's all just, you know, it's almost like the matrix, like we're just a simulation or something. <laughs> um, so I wanted yeah. to ask you about that. Where does that come from? Well, that, that comes from like, I, you know, I've, I said already that I'm, I'm a big Kierkegaard guy, but it's, you know, it's also, you know, my, all of my uh, favorite, philosophers all the ones that i go back to again and again are intensely concerned with uh spirituality and and meaning but also completely rooted in existence and behavior um so you know the william james would ask what's the actual cash value of this idea you know what i mean um and so when i was reading descartes this you know his thought there is actually is is actually a thought that i had in 
intro to philosophy when I was exposed to the cogito, um, you know, I think therefore I am, I was like, you didn't seem to have doubted language. And if you doubt language, language yeah. then you can't rebuild the world through thinking. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I, it's weird because I've asked, I asked a number of, you know, philosophers that over time and no, no one seems to think that's weird. <laughs> um, but, but, um, but to me, it's, you know, it's, it seems like a, de- a complete dead end. Like you could not possibly rebuild if you were to doubt language. Um, and, but maybe, yeah, you know, seems maybe like some, and those guys are on about, right? Yeah. But you'll, I mean, you have smart readers. Maybe somebody will write in and school me or something like that. Oh, they should read the book first. Uh, it's available from Astrophil <laughs> Press. Um, and, uh, I, I do want to say that it's available now. They can order it, um, online and, uh, I put a link, put in, a the link in the show notes best and get on it. our um, social channels to order the book. I really think it's, um, you know, super interesting from a philosophical point of view, but also just as a role. Uh, I mean, the fiction narrative itself is just really compelling. And uh, the whole thing, it's sort of the role of time I wanted to ask you about, because it's sort of a compressed retelling of a bunch of events. And a lot of the, the chapter dividers are like a certain day or the time of day. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think the whole thing takes place in a week. Maybe it does. I think it the whole th- there's a lot of flashbacks i guess but uh-huh. um the whole thing is what was the idea with I making it like a week, a week? Or, or like a five day uh-huh. work week yeah it's it takes place or it's written over uh, over a week but it, it takes place over his entire right. life you know so because right. you get a lot of um, his I'm, uh you know him like you said as a young student um learning these things there's even a pretty um interesting debate about abortion um, <laughs> from a high school English classroom I, flashback, yeah, which yes. I read at the wrong moment. Um, yeah, you wrote this, uh, you know, ten years ago, and boy, was it prescient about the week we're in right now. But yeah. but it's also making the point. I think what you're saying with Descartes of like, I think, therefore, I am. Can a baby make that claim? Um, and you know, some of your questions, like, can Descartes doubt the existence of language? Sounds a lot of like what Wittgenstein was doing. Um, of making mm-hmm. these wild claims of with language or really not taking at face value what had been passed down to, from previous philosophers, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. seemed like, you know, this guy was really smart about this guy, meaning Mike Long. Um, mm-hmm. And Mike yet Long. maybe it doesn't work out for him. <laughs> and he's well, I mean, a bit, um, he's a bit um, playful with some of his language. Like mm-hmm. you, you he says the malapropism and to be completely candid <laughs> in the context he means candid but he's you know, uh-huh. dropping a voltaire reference to uh-huh. show that he's like knows about philosophers and stuff and i love e- that, that every at funny. every level of the editorial process flag people that. Checked in on that they were like did you, did you do it before? yeah you know it's like the copy editor and you know even i even had a, a a reviewer after he submitted the review like was like I, I've already put in my review. Can you tell me whether this was intentional or not? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was based on the, who the narrator is. His interest in philosophy. Um, there's also funny other malapropisms like uh, Casey tries to say menage trois, but he says manger trois, <laughs> and then Mike goes into like, well, if you know French, manger. You know, he doesn't. You don't spell that out exactly, but if you know a little bit of French, like I do, because I'm Canadian, I know that, that means to eat. Um, so there's some really funny like wordplay stuff that, uh, depending on which character it's being applied to, it 
can be funny for different reasons. Um, like I said, Casey's kind of a hick. That's an example of his hickishness there as well. Yeah. My, my guiding principle with the narrator was like that I wanted him to be able to, to really pull off some weird combinations. But my yeah. guiding principle was that he's, he's uh, not as smart as he thinks he is, but that he's not mm. as dumb as he seems. You know what I mean? That's, mm. uh, I feel like that's most people. Me, or, or, yeah. yeah, yeah, true. I mean, me. I hope um, definitely not as smart as I seem, but maybe not as dumb. Uh, some some of the time. Um, and honestly, this is usually around the time in the interview, probably a little past, where we ask for the author to read something, Dave. Um, yeah, that's a great time. I, I was just thinking that too. I feel like we should give the uh, listeners a taste of what we're talking about here because. I do think your prose is really good in this and really good being, um, uh, you know, honest with the reader. And uh, a lot of it felt real, it felt true, um, but also like abstract in a way that was very intriguing, like that I wanted to keep going to see what was happening to this guy. Um, Yeah, and also hilarious, I would add. There's such funny things. I mean, the whole thing with chilies we haven't even gotten into, really. So. I did a lot of research for that one. <laughs> a lot of pictures. <laughs> in, in so Christian, did you, do you have a section of the book that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I'm going to read a real short passage um, uh, that really doesn't need any setup, except that you should understand that the narrator, Mike Long, works in an office and digresses all the time. Uh, a long time ago, when I first started the job, or maybe a couple of months in, someone left one of those one-panel cartoons on my desk from that magazine, The New Yorker, I think, that does the one-panel cartoons that aren't funny and don't make any sense. But if you can explain to someone how they're supposed to make sense and do a convincing chuckle before or after the explanation, I can't remember which right now, they will promote you, and I've seen this happen. Okay, I didn't see it with my own two eyes, but I heard about it. The guy who got promoted was named Richard, but they called him the narrator, because legend had it he could explain to you any of those cartoons, even the one with the guy on the golf course, which is the one that got him promoted. But he was so good that right after the promotion, someone overheard him explaining the same cartoon in a bar and offered him an even better job on the spot. I can't explain to you the golf cartoon right now because I never actually saw that either. And it was so sophisticated that no one who was there can explain it to me, though they all say he made it perfectly clear and they internalized the lesson of it. Anyway, someone left one of those on my desk, KC I'm guessing, or one of the women in accounts who calls every handshake harassment. Or maybe it was just someone who thought I would find it funny. It showed two people, a man and a woman, sitting at a bar. The man was looking at the woman, more precisely the woman's cleavage, which was ample and deep. But you couldn't tell where the woman was looking because the artist, who was probably a pervert, seemed to have forgotten to draw her head. The caption read, male pattern blindness. Stupid, right? So I whited out the caption, and when it dried, I wrote my own caption over it. Look at that guy with the head. Then I stuck it to the corkboard to see if I would get promoted, but no one noticed. Okay, this is a great example of a section that is hilarious and also shows that Mike Long is an idiot <laughs> in some ways. The previous um, caption was better, I have to say. <laughs> yes. He also takes a nap under his desk at one point, <laughs> at which point I'm thinking there's a lot of Seinfeld references here. Uh, you know, the whole New Yorker cartoon thing with Elaine Bennis, and she's so frustrated she never understands them. And then, you know, the nap under the... I was like, okay, there's well, some... Kind good. of the, the one who never shows up, too. That could be nice. very Seinfeld. Like, uh-huh. you know, yeah, totally. Um, that's but, a good... But there's a reason a why Seinfeld was so successful. It's, a, it's funny. It's good. Um, mm-hmm. Dave, you you had flagged Absolutely. a section that you wanted to read as well. 
Yeah, sure, I do. Uh, this one's a little bit longer. This is um, so. This is a conversation that Mike Long is having uh, with his dad about uh, kind of a, a past event, a past incident involving one of the female characters uh, a long time ago when she was in high school, and the dad is a high school English teacher. Um, so that's a bit of the context of this uh, this couple pages here. Harvard dad, or at least Vassar. I could have gone to Vassar. I seethed. He turned his head slowly from side to side, unsurprised, but aware that I, or at least someone, was in the room. Do you know what kind of doors Vassar can open for a young philosopher, I said. He opened his eyes. It took them a long time to focus, longer to find me, and when they did, they didn't show any sign of recognition, much less concern. Do you, I said, raising the volume. And when he didn't answer, I brought the hammer down. Neither do I, because I never went to Vassar. I could tell I'd been recognized, but the sheer effort it took had me losing steam. I tried to keep it going, or Amherst, or Bates, or Bowdoin, or, I stumbled, mumbled, at least Bucknell. I was capable of going on longer. I had memorized the U.S. News and World Report rankings every year since I'd graduated high school and could recite them in numerical or alphabetical order. Obviously, this time I had chosen alphabetical. <laughs> but my father had heard all that before, was used to it by now already preparing to dismiss me. What he doesn't know was that I had new evidence, an eyewitness account, a personal confession, and I had to get to it before he went back to watching unproduced movies on his eyelids. I saw her today, I said. His eyes flashed suddenly. I could tell he was fully present and that somehow he knew who I meant. He glazed over on purpose, but I had him. Who, he said. Don't play dumb, I said. He closed his eyes, and at first I thought he'd managed to nod off again, but when he brought his sagging arm up to his clammy forehead, I could tell he was thinking. He finally spoke. Son, I dreamed of permanent revolution, but what I got was perpetual war. It wasn't my choice to make. Ever since the doctors got him hooked, he sounded more like an oracle than a philosopher, but I could usually get some sense out of him. She said nothing happened, I said. She said you didn't do anything. He replied more quickly than I expected. She told you the facts, son, but not the truth. I did not lay a hand on her, nor did I say a word. I did not even look much her way, just a glance in the mirror every now and then. She was draped across the back seat, intoxicated and vulnerable. Her vulnerability did not appeal to me, son. For me, the strong-willed girl of slightly above-average intelligence, stone sober if a little run-down and irritable at the tail end of a long school day, seeking out ways to argue the intersection of classic literature and current affairs, Hemingway and abortion, Eliot and sex work, James Joyce and coprophilia. That was the version of her that filled my mind as I drove her drunken husk home. In my head, she was the initiator, and the things she initiated were glorious but unspeakable, and so I will speak no more of them, son, except to say that at the height of our imaginary passion, I looked into the mirror to refresh my memory of the actual thing and met her eyes, or rather, her eye's reflection. She was staring at me as aggressively as she had in my fantasies, but her gaze did not express desire, son. It expressed awareness, as though my own eyes were projecting the scene in my brain out onto the mirror where she could see it in reverse. She knew, son, not vaguely, but in high-definition detail. She knew the placement of every limb, every appendage, the velocity and viscosity of each drop of sweat and fluid on our bodies in my mind's eye. And she knew that I knew that she knew because that look of awareness slipped briefly into horror before ossifying into disgust. 
a look of disgust she maintained defiantly until the very moment we pulled up in front of her parents' house son. That look told me she would scorch my earth if she could, and I was impressed, aroused, and devastated. She did say you were a little weird on the drive home, I said. <laughs> That's just the thing, son, he said. It wasn't weird. It was perfectly normal. It was the way of things. If anything, her acknowledgement of it was weird. That was the innovation, a tactic only, son, indicating a new strategy, a nuclear option, that of not allowing me or any man, I'd guess, to imagine those things in her presence or to delight in the belief that she knew and could do nothing about it. The only thing, soldier, was to retreat, but our retreat was not tactical. It was strategic, endless retreat. I have consulted with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and we are in complete agreement. It was ironic him using this extended military metaphor, considering he dodged the Vietnam draft by wearing lace panties to his exam, pubic hair trimmed into the shape of a heart. He'd admitted it when I came back to my dorm room on September 11th, 2001. He told me those methods wouldn't work anymore and he was going to have to shoot me in the foot, was all ready to head over to Walmart and buy a gun. I managed to convince him to wait until I was at least called up. Now here he was talking like he was the commander in chief himself, the old man at the diner, his trusted war cabinet. Isn't that kind of a grandiose way to talk about the battle of the sexes, I said? Is that what you think, son, the battle of the sexes? What I'm talking about is the war on terror, and I am terror, son. Which I suppose makes you terror's son. It was the oracle of the Temple of Apollo at Delphi that declared Socrates the wisest man alive. But here's the thing about oracles. They were just old ladies in caves getting high off ethylene fumes that rose up from a crack in the ground and rambling. There was no reason to listen to them, just like there was no reason to listen to my father. I'm going to bring you on my next tour, Dave. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm happy to join you. <laughs> um, there's some obviously some great stuff about fathers and sons there, and, and those are deep themes in a lot of the books that we you know tend to like and talk about on the show. Um, I also... Uh, put it together today that that that's something that Mary Carr said to you on September that's 15th, right. 2001. You just started teaching. She said, we're going to have to shoot you in the foot so you don't get drafted. You got it. And then I was still, like, I... oh, that's in the book. And then I went back and I was like, there it is. Yep. <laughs> I heard that on another podcast. Um, little inside tip. You know, when you were reading that, Dave, I realized that I also did want to read a section of the book. And uh, awesome. Um, this is a section, uh, this is starts on the page that does have the one mention of Kierkegaard in the book and makes a lot more sense to me now that we're talking to the author himself. Um, but I, I think it's maybe my favorite part of the book. So I'm just going to start. Um, I'm not even going to set it up. I'm just going to read it. April bent down and gave me a kiss on the cheek and then left, leaving me with a lot of questions, first among them being how April could know she would see me tomorrow, that is Sunday, when we hadn't made any plans and I didn't have any plans she could know about. The thing about a world that exists, you can have a lot of questions and all possible answers seem pretty random until they happen, at which point they start to have to been kind of inevitable. Take April's random comment, for example. What did she meant by that? That she just randomly picked a guy in the park and it happened to be me or was she using it more colloquially as in I was just walking through the park, saw a guy I was attracted to and I randomly decided to follow him home because everything exists. There are all these thoughts running through my head, but also running through hers. 
So what seems random to me, and maybe also to her, is not actually random, but the combined existences of us interacting, which is beautiful, even if the outcome is bad. And I'm not just saying that because I already know the outcome of this particular interaction, or at least part of it. So I decided to head home and just think all night about the seduction and what would happen after the seduction, about what I would be when I was no longer office manager, which I decided would be soon because it did not seem an appropriate career ambition in a world that existed, about thinking and how we can share and understand the thoughts that happen between us and ask a lot of questions and not worry about the answers, which is the beginning of philosophy. And to that, I would say, and interviewing someone. Um, and that, I, you know, there's also another part of the book, which I really like too, which is about like meeting someone. And when he first meets um, April Curtis, he sort of has this preconceived idea of her. Um, but what I find really beautiful about it is like, this is what really matters. It's like meeting someone can change your life. Having a conversation with someone can be the most important thing that ever happens to you. And he feels like yeah. aware of that, um, uh, but but maybe I, maybe I'm misreading it. I mean, was that ironic or or, or sincere, Christian? It was absolutely okay. sincere. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like the the <laughs> the very first short story I ever wrote was um, it was called Took and Lost, um, and it was about this that the the main character is going around trying to figure out who took something from him, and it was just that by interacting with somebody. The, the person who took something from him stole his sense of life's meaninglessness. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, um, that's a good and, thing to steal, I guess. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the basis of everything I think and write basically um, as, I mean, that's really, really corny to say aloud, um, which is why I write long stories to obscure that fact, you know, to couch. I mean? but, just, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, yeah, that's exactly well, and, it. And I, hmm. you know, I, I was also thinking before we were talking to you today about like, if I wrote a book like this, would I even really, want to talk about it that much because like your whole thing is like about indirect communication and i'm like maybe we should just like play a version of like some online video game and like indirectly talk about <laughs> some ideas that then if you had read this book would also make sense so like you know what 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 kind of like you know reader did you have in mind i mean this is a shitty question but like what kind of reader did you have in mind like what kind of are you writing for an audience of a person Obviously, you have people, readers, who you know you're going to have to send this to, and they're going to read your work. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. like, when you're in the act of writing it, like, you know, who do you really imagine that you're writing for? You know, uh, I've kind of gotten to this place where – I'm so I remember when I was working on my very first book, I was in grad school, and uh, my – there was this conversation about who you write for and it had literally never occurred to me that you write for anybody but yourself. Um, and, uh, one of my classmates was like, well, that's masturbatory. And I was like, well, you know, writing for someone else's masturbation with porn then. Um, and like the, I, I, yeah, that's funny. you know, the, 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 the worst things get for me, like writing is supposed to be a fun and joyful act. It should never be painful or frustrating to me. And the only times it has been is when I slip and start thinking about like literally anybody else, you know, the, the mm. book I'm working on right now, I, I joked on a previous podcast and also on social media that there's a point in every book I'm writing where I know that I have gone beyond the bounds of propriety and therefore can't make money on it and will only be 
you know, embraced by, you know, weirdos. And uh, that's freeing to me and it allows me to say what I want to say honestly. And so, uh, you know, I know Adam Levin and my brother are the two people that I show my work to before I ever show it to an editor. And um, I know that sometimes they like it and sometimes they don't, um, but they're going to be honest with me in their reactions. But also I know that they, that I can't uh, piss either of them off. Uh, and, but otherwise I, that I put very, very little thought into it just because there was this weird brief moment where agents were coming to me and it was without my ever having put any thought into that. And I was like, well, maybe I can make money. You know, maybe I, maybe there is a mainstream audience for this. <laughs> and it, it was, you know, like three years of frustration that that was totally mm, counterproductive, yeah. you know? Right. And you told that anecdote about like your thesis supervisor, or someone being like, you know, if you want to have like more than four readers, yeah. you need to start writing different kinds of stories. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so like, who do you imagine your four readers to be? <laughs> Adam, your brother, Matt and Dave. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, but I mean, what's, what's been great about that is I actually think, um, I think there's a bunch of us, but I think, by just kind of sticking to that, there's like a, I have a, a bunch of people, not even who necessarily in cases that are like aesthetically similar to me. Like, um, like I don't know if you know Blake Butler, but Blake uh, Butler and I are not similar writers at all. You right. know what I mean? Um, but but you know, I remember he was he was you know getting attention at the same time I first started getting attention, and it was like there was this kind of you know it turned out that there were eight instead of four, you know what I mean? And then 16 instead of eight. And I mean, it's not going to go beyond 24, you know, but that's, you know, a bunch yeah. of other writers that were like, in a very, I would say reductive idea of like, what is like post postmodernism. Um, right, and right. It's sort of the most is idea of like weird for the sake of being weird. And it's like, well, that's not mm. a really a grouping. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> and he was grouped in with like, you know, Tao Lin and, um, maybe even Amelia Gray and, you know, some mm -hmm. other writers who were just taking risks. Um, but there's all mm -hmm. kinds of risks and like, even like Chuck Palahniuk, like writing about, you know, some really graphic violence is not so much taking a risk is like trying to subvert the idea of like fiction or Aristotle's mm -hmm. poetics mm -hmm. or whatever. So like, I, I think that that's really a, a shitty way. And I think there are a plenty of smart readers who can make those distinctions and, and mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. like yes is it um is it ever going to be enough to um just work off of where you don't have any other job and your wife doesn't have any other job and you have a massive family <laughs> like probably not like you probably have to be uh -huh. stephen king to do that um uh -huh. but i i really do admire you know writers like you uh who, who take those risks and stick to it um you know, no matter what and not play to like, yes. Oh, I'm going to go now try to write a commercial novel. <laughs> well, I should also point out that I'm actually very great. I mean, like I, I really was when it was Arthur flowers who, by the way, is one of my favorite people ever. And also he's an amazing writer and mentor. Um, and he, and I, he knew that I knew what he was saying when he said, you're going to have four readers. Um, but it's the, the thing is, is every, every read over four, I'm not grateful for the, for the four of you that I know will read it, but <laughs> but the rest of the you know every time and it's it's very strange to be like you know this book got one review I, i've been on a bunch of podcasts but this book got one proper review um and yet still like there will be people that will tag me into a twitter post saying i just read this and it's funny you know and it's like i'm very grateful uh -huh. that that's happening yeah and mm -hmm. um uh, you know uh 
it, it does happen. You, you can be, you uh, know. It, it yeah. does happen because I also think there are people who are, are also looking for something, um, you know, that, that is not um, mainstream, right? It is not going to just feed into a predictable structure, a predictable nature. They're looking for something, in, you know, uh, it's you get the same thing with music or films or anything. Like with books, mm. there are people who are like, I want something that's maybe more at the edges of the mainstream sensibility. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I, I actually don't think there's anything to, like you said, you you didn't go completely off the rails in this book. This book is pretty well (laughs) restrained. And I feel like, you know, Oh yeah. Like I feel like Tuflahoma is like way off the rails (laughs) and and ghost engine too. Like this is pretty normal. Um, Well, Tuflahoma was a direct reaction to the, when, when, people were reading this and were like, it's, it's still really weird. And I was like, well, I'll show you, you some weird, weird you know? shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, awesome. And then in terms of like press too, you have, uh, Adam Levin, um, immortalizing you in his forthcoming novel, Mount Chicago <laughs> in a couple places. Um, this is kind of telegraphing our next guest, um, a little bit, but like, here's a, a passage from page one Oh one there. He says, he possessed two shelves of books by writers who Gladman had praised in interviews, Delillo, Kafka, Pacheco, Roth, Elkin, Paley, O'Connor, Percival, Everett, Saunders, Cervantes, Hannah, Era, Paul Beatty, Hallebeck, Bordas, Vonnegut, Milhauser, Paget Powell, Ellison, Elroy, Castellanos, Moya, Bernhard, Bove, Lydia Davis, Nicholson Baker, yada yada, Helen DeWitt, Christian Tabordo, uh, and of course Gogol. And a bunch of other names. And Paget Powell also um, and blurbers. I assume maybe a teacher of yours. Yes, was he teacher. No, he wasn't. He's he's actually, uh, you know, Powell is Powell's kind of my hero, wow. um, and uh, I've never met him. I've never interacted with him in any formal way, um, and uh, I I sent him I sent him a request. Um, the the blurb is unhinged. Oh, yeah. It's you know, nuts. It's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> he totally... you know. He, he was like, he, he replied, like, no one will publish my blurbs anymore. And also, <laughs> I'm more or less illiterate. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, well, you know, I, I work with small presses, so I can override any veto. Like, I can guarantee oh, your yeah. blurb will go on the back. And I was like, I won't change a thing. And <laughs> so I, I'll, I'm very proud of that. I'll, I'll, I'll read it. I have it handy. Yeah. Paget yeah, Powell says, that's I am good. the blurber and you the blurbed at. And beyond that truism, we shall eschew the literary within this utterance. The apology is damned weird business. To attempt explication is to sound even dumber. But who cares? I do not mean the typical pushed strange weird. I mean the weird of the pushed banal. The mundane taken to some kind of fascinating negative power. If you want some (laughs) damned weird business, take Mr. Tabordo home with you. That's a hell of a blurb there. Uh, yeah, and the Paget Powell true. is the teacher of one of our former guests, who was uh, Dr. Rob Short, uh, and oh, really? maybe a fishing hmm, buddy of his okay. as well. I think he's a big fisherman. Huh. Um, oh yeah, uh, Rob loves. His anyways, fishing. where can people find this book? What would be the best way for people to support you, Christian? Buy it uh, directly from the publisher. Small. No, no, no. Small. Or, um, <laughs> Honestly, I, I mean, no, I mean, I think the 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 publisher is the best. Astrophil Press uh, is probably the best place. Um, but honestly, I just want the word out. We're, we're you know, we're so, <laughs> so, you know, I had somebody like pop up 
uh, in my DMs on Twitter being like, I, uh, I don't even like reading print books. Can you, do, but your book is not available as an ebook. Can you, do you have a PDF? I was like, sure, here you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's Hilarious. not available to all of our I've listeners. I've never heard someone of that problem. That's not available to all of our <laughs> listeners. We're going to cut that out. Uh, oh, yeah. No, it was a very limited uh, edition PDF. It's out of print. First, first come, first serve. <laughs> it's out of print now. Um, PDF but no, I, I can't recommend this corrupted. Uh, highly enough. You know, when um, uh, I'm going to bring it back to Wallace one more time, just like when we were talking about Wallace er, uh, earlier. <laughs> And the Pale King, I think, you know, some of his best work um, is in the Pale King. And a lot of what's in here reminded me of the Pale King. Uh, you know, your ability to, to write monologues and dialogues at happy hour is really reminiscent of, you know, some of the, the, my most, like, treasured memories of reading stuff that I've ever read. So, like, uh, mm -hmm. I, I give it a really, uh, you know, high marks for that stuff. And um, uh, all of those other people who rejected it. <laughs> that's where henry gets any, it from yes, i had bird. to give it yeah. in honor any uh <laughs> any other um uh final thoughts from you dave before we uh move on yeah i gotta ask you about the cover um so the cover is like a greco-roman like sculpture of a of a nude woman and i'm trying to think like is this athena is this antigone i know oedipus and antigone get mentioned in the book um, tell us about the, the origin of the Greco-Roman statuary and the cover and how it relates to the book. All right. Uh, so it, I mean, it really is there because of the, like kind of the focus on classical culture and philosophy that the, the narrator mm -hmm. uses and how, you know, the, the obvious cover would have just been to reproduce, uh, the, the death of Socrates by Jacques-Louis de Bede. Sure. Um, yeah. uh, but, but so this kind of, evokes this in a kind of an inappropriate way just because there's i mean it's not really with the male gaze a little bit yeah yeah well <laughs> i mean yeah there's a lot of focus on breasts in the book and stuff um, sure are, yeah. but uh i also it was funny because uh the the uh publisher of astrophil press is this guy duncan barlow and he's great to work with um and a, and a really good writer in his own right um but you know i was i was i was really pushing him to to break design rules while while we did it mm -hmm. And we didn't end up breaking that many. I think the, 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 you know, it's got a kind of classical symmetry almost to the cover, but I was trying to get him to be like, let's put the title on the bottom and just have this statue floating above it. And my name appear nowhere on it and stuff like that. Cause <laughs> I wanted to like, cause the thing is, is that I feel like there's this, um, when you're reading the book, there should be this sense that things are flowing smoothly and going from point A to P point B in a natural way. But I think this conversation has kind of shown that there's, it really doesn't that like that it's like it's 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 not like our disorganized not a really interviewing style no 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 you're, you guys are great i'm saying like i'm like it's there's not really a coherent way to talk about yeah. what i meant to do with the book i don't think and i, I want yeah, to kind of yeah, express that yeah. and in the same way like the interior layout it's like yeah. the chapter titles are on like the verso page half the yeah. time and it's like yeah. um it's like it's it's cluttered and and you know weird uh, like, well the know, epigraphs so, you've got all uh, these cross outs too like the strike through <laughs> yeah, right. it's almost like yeah, yeah. i couldn't get his shit together um, um <laughs> but actually i'm really i really love the cover of this book because if you had put socrates on the cover and it said the apology i feel like that would give it uh -huh. a false sense of you know people uh -huh. would pick it up at this you know be like oh this is all about socrates or something and it's really not like it's not it's uh -huh. its own thing and like <laughs> yeah the ambiguity of, you know, who is this woman on there matches with the ambiguity of, you know, finding out who this woman is in the, in the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And oh, I also good. want to say yeah, one other good. thing about that, which is 
that reveal of like who is this woman it's really hard to do in prose like there are some things that are really hard to do in audio like i can't show a chart or a graph like i can't i can do really good you know music and sounds and build up suspense that way but if i want to say like just trust me she's incredibly beautiful like you, you can do that better <laughs> in film right like you can actually go mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. cast a really beautiful woman um, but in prose and something where it's a non like visual medium like that, I think it's very hard, um, you know, to do that. And, and you achieved it with April oh. Curtis. So, Well, I appreciate that. I think the, the, the reason is because I'm a totally non visual person. <laughs> so if I had described three things, then that's that's all I see. You know what I, mean? uh, I, I think that works in this case. That's to your advantage. Um, <laughs> So Christian Tabordo. How do you describe the way that you visualize characters' faces in books, Christian? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I talked to my... A, this is kind of a goof question because there's a part in uh, Mount Chicago where Adam, or the character yeah, yeah. asks you this, <laughs> yeah. and then you write back in an email that that's childish well, bullshit. Actually, we <laughs> talked about Kyle Beachy with this, a whole book called this book, Peter Mendelssohn, What We See When uh-huh. We Read. Oh, and yeah. he's obsessed with that question of like, can you visualize uh-huh. Anna Karenina based on this description? And um, actually I realized as a reader, I don't give a shit. Like I don't, I don't have to think, you know, I don't have to like visualize someone's face. And often when I visualize the narrator, it's me. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I really don't, I have a trouble vision visualizing, uh, you know, in any great specific, anybody, you know, it's my, it's funny. My wife is a choreographer um, oh, or a she... choreographer by by training. She's she she does a lot of arts and administration now. But mm-hmm. my son was talking to me about this. He does these kind of like weird, kind of physical routines. Sometimes he's he's eleven. He just likes to act out. And I was like, well, yeah. where is this story coming from? And he's like, I see the next move in my head like a half a second before I do it, and then I do it. And I was like, that's just completely foreign to the way I do things. So like in a when I'm writing a a story, I think for the you know, for the, for the benefit of coherence, sometimes I have to describe something and I'll just stop and try to real hard to make something up, (laughs) you know? Um, And, you know, it's (laughs) when I walk into a room, maybe I'll notice three things in the entire room. And those are the things that get thrown into there, you know? Um, (laughs) That's awesome. I am excited about your mention of a forthcoming book. So please, you don't have to talk yes. about it, but like, just keep writing, keep doing your thing. Uh, it's <laughs> awesome. Um, we'll keep reading. Any, them, any, um, we do have a, a special bonus segment coming up, but uh, Christian, where I know you're on Twitter. Uh, where else is, is that your preferred method of people want to get your witticisms on a regular basis? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like, people should know that your Twitter is like so off the wall. Like, 99% of the time I'm like I think he's joking here and just being ironic I'm pretty sure but like the voice of it is wonderful I, oh, I appreciate it yeah it's, no it's, it's pure bullshit I uh on yeah, principle it seems the, I mean unless I break down and say a book is good you know what I mean like when I like, right. I mean it when I say a book is good but for the most part um, right. um, you know what and bullshit. in fact you're one of the only other tweets I remember your tweet specifically about a, a book that I tweeted about which is magnetic fields um, and, oh, and yeah. Ron Lowenson. Oh, yeah. and, um, I just uh, emailed a book, local bookstore about that. Fantastic book. Today. I'm trying to get a hold book. of it. Um, uh, and 
probably recommended to me by the same person who recommended it to you. Um, maybe. <laughs> um, but I really love that book. Uh, I, I went looking for more tweets about it. And like <laughs> I think one of the only tweets in existence on that book is Christian Tabordo's tweet about magnetic fields. So if our listeners have not read that book, I would recommend it. Um, is yeah, the band was... named after this book, do you think? No, I think it's a generic term, magnetic mm. fields. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who... I mean, the book definitely predates the band. It's from like 85 or something. 82, yeah. Yeah. 83. It was, it's weird because, you know, as a Dalky diehard, I had always been looking out for it, but that was one book mm. that I never came across. And then... Um, uh, Levin was like, you have yeah. to read it. He, he, he read mm-hmm. it like last year and I was like, well, I've always meant to. And then I, I, this time I've special yeah. ordered it. And it's, it's interesting cause it's, this is a conversation that uh, Kyle Beach and I have all the time about, um, uh, you know, I, I'm usually bullshitting, but I'm actually not joking when I say end zone is Don DeLillo's best book. Um, mm. But I've never read that one actually. <laughs> There's like a handful of early books that I still That's haven't like read. That's like the one read, like, infinite, if you're going to read infinite just read, God damn it. Yeah, right. but uh <laughs> but you know kyle beachy is you know has has been my colleague for about a decade and and he he really and he is not joking when he says that he he thinks late period delillo is the best delillo he he loves point omega which you know i like right but it's but like yeah it's not it's white noise you know what i mean but no uh, nothing <laughs> but like kyle kyle will throw down with you and i was like to me magnetic fields is this kind of weird transition between each of delillo's periods it's like it, it reads oh, okay. a lot like delillo but it predates yeah. them Delillo's major periods. It's, it's, it's great. And there's a lot in well, there about it's a good uh, comparison. You know, audio production and um, yeah. it kind of yep. applies to <laughs> Hey, I could dig that. <laughs> um, it's just a really fantastic book. So anyways, you're, that that alone Sweet. is worth following Christian Tabordo on Twitter for uh, what is what is your yes, it's ex, ex, Tabordo, ex Tabordo, Christian yeah. Tabordo. Okay. Nice. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, Matt, where can folks find us? We are Concavity Show on Twitter and Instagram, and people can email us, concavityshow at gmail.com. That's right. We have Facebook, but, like, who cares about that? Uh, We have some new patrons this month. We want to say thank you so much to Dylan Lackey, to Ben Hansen, and to Andrew Merritt. Thanks, guys, for joining the team. We so appreciate your support there. And speaking of being a patron, if you want to hear more from Christian Tabordo, we're going to be talking in our next segment, our bonus episode with him, about uh, five great books that, that he's going to tell us about. Uh, we always want to also thank Parquet Courts for their songs Instant Disassembly and Tenderness that accompany our shows. Uh, we want to thank Chris Ayers for his logo design. And it's always worth giving a shout out to Robin O'Neill for her original logo design for our show as well. Thanks, Robin. Uh, and incidentally, I got to hang out with Chris Ayers a couple weeks ago in Vancouver, Matt. So that was fun to catch up. We had our own little Wallace 22 uh, conference together. Us sad people who couldn't make it to Austin. Um, That's great. I'm glad you got to meet up. <laughs> Christian, thanks. Thank yeah, you. Catch me now as I say. Into darkness. You can totally ignore us, too. That's totally fine. Um, <laughs> Impossible. Um, you guys are too charismatic. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Sucking up to the host. I mean, I'll, um, I'll take that. Yeah, sure. <laughs>